Welcome to the Nova Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Crossroads Series podcast. My name is Bradley Otteson, and I'm the violist of the Fry Street Quartet. We are the co-music directors of the Nova Chamber Music Series in Salt Lake City and the String Quartet in Residence with the Kane College of the Arts at Utah State University. Nova recently hosted the online film premiere of The Crossroads Project a multidisciplinary performance exploring sustainability. Our partner in this collaboration is Dr. Rob Davies. Dr. Davies is here today. Please introduce yourself. Hi, Brad. Uh, thanks a bunch. And so, yes, I'm Rob Davies. I'm a professor of physics at Utah State University. I focus on global change and critical science communication. Uh, and as Brad mentioned, I am co-creator of uh, the Crossroads Project, Rising Tide, along with my friends, the Fry Street Quartet. Um, first, let me just thank the Nova Chamber Music, Nova Chamber Music Series uh, and Utah State University Kane College of the Arts for their major support uh, in, in producing this film that, uh, that Nova is making available uh, for free. Uh, and there are a bunch of other folks we'll thank as well. Uh, we'll tag at the end of the show. Um, so let's just start with a recap. Uh, and... Uh, as Brad said, the Crossroads Project is a performance project, a, a performance science project. And if you've watched the film, you know it blends science and imagery and music, exploring the wonders of how our island planet, as we call it, makes human civilization possible, and the structures of human civilization that are threatening our natural foundations. Um, if you haven't seen the film, you can watch it for free on YouTube, again, thanks to Nova, and we'll post a link for that. Um, so the, the performance weaves together these themes of water and life and food and people. And these podcasts are intended to give us some additional room to explore these stories in our own right, more room than we have in a 70-minute film, and also the telling of these stories in this way. And so today what we're doing is delving into Act 2, which is BIOS, uh, which looks at the foundational rules of Earth's living systems, the biosphere. And to help us do that, we've invited both scientific and artistic voices to the conversation. Speaking of whom, let's introduce them now. Um, Brad, who do we have with us? Well, our first guest is a good friend of the Fry Street Quartet. John Shivik is an applied ecologist based here in Logan, Utah. He's a rugged outdoorsman, <laughs> but also a great lover of the arts. So we regularly see him at concerts and other of our arts events here at USU. Uh, welcome, John. Thank you. Happy to be here. And we also have with us uh, Rebecca Allen, a visual artist, painter, uh, who has been also a great friend of the Crossroads Project and the Fry Street Quartet and myself, and has been with this project from its inception um, over eight years ago now. Um, welcome, Rebecca. Hi, thank you so much. Well, thank you both for being here. Uh, John, we want to start with you. And uh, would you be willing to tell us just a little bit more about yourself, uh, your personal background, your work, and your areas of interest and study? Yes, I've, I guess I have a somewhat of a long history and varied history, um, dipping my 
myself into different aspects of biology um, as a wildlife management major. Um, uh, I started get in, started to get interested in wildlife, and then realized all too quickly that the management of wildlife is largely about the management of people. Um, and learned as I went that I wanted to try to live in that space between people and wildlife. So I became a, a researcher, worked at the university for oh, about a decade and specialized in human wildlife conflicts, especially between humans and predators, um, coyotes, bears, wolves, those kinds of things. Uh, and then I thought I was really an applied ecologist. I thought I was really applied. I moved into working for the state as a state biologist and as a federal land manager. So I've done everything from living in the ivory towers to jumping right into the trenches and, and watching things actually happen. So um, that's led me along this path. And I have to admit, you know, one of the brightest points um, has been the development of these kinds of um, collaborations, you know, this this uh, crossroads effort, the art that you guys have brought have really kind of kept me afloat on some of those hard days. So I appreciate that. Thank you. And you've written a couple of books, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to do as, as I went along is, is share this knowledge and get it out there. So I, I wrote an initial book called The Predator Paradox, which is exactly about how to live with predators um, and the relationship humans have with them. And then I also delved into a book on animal personality and individuality in animals um, as a way of getting that knowledge. And just one of the main themes of that book, and I think an important thing about probably some of our discussion today, is just how important personality, individuality is, um, and what each of us brings as an individual into these types of conversations. And that's largely what that book's about, but it's about animals. John's a great writer. These books are very uh, engaging and, and the language is fun. Oh, thanks, Brad. Uh, so I want to go from that to another question about the Crossroads Project. Uh, you're based here in Logan, and you've been sort of with the Crossroads Project from the beginning. The very You saw one of the very early versions before we even had original music written for the Crossroads Project. And then you saw the unveiling of uh, Laura Kaminsky's wonderful mm -hmm. score, which also mm -hmm. pulled Rebecca Allen into the project. Right. Um, so you sort of saw the full unveiling of the Crossroads project in 2012, and then and you've seen it evolve since then to the film version, which we just premiered in 2020. Could you just talk a little bit about your experience with the Crossroads project through all of these manifestations? Well, well the easiest thing is how lucky am I? Um, like I said, this your 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 art, and I've been a fan of the quartet. Um, for a number of years, um, and I really appreciated what you guys have done. Um, the original, you know, this is a number of years ago. Um, there's a lot of the aspects of the original that have changed, and it's been neat to see how it's progressed and how you've shaved things and added things and really made it bigger. In the artwork, um, Rebecca's art you know, and some of the other artwork has really expanded it. The score, I love Kaminsky's score now, especially Water. I love that first movement. Um, it's wonderful. But some of the things that I remember in the original that you guys dropped out, and I, I think I even complained to Rob at one point about it, um, you, you had a little more, and I realize it's a difficult thing to do, but you did have a little more, tried some humor, tried some levity in it. Um, but in that original performance, 
the music, of course, was beautiful. Rob, your delivery is great. But boy, I felt a real sense of despair <laughs> coming out of it. Um, and it's been nice. I love the way you really moved it along this time now and to end with, uh, you know what, John, you don't have to solve everything. Um, we just all need to come to the table and bring something little. And between um, that element of it, the oh, the, the humor thing, the, the part I really loved in the 2012 original version, do you remember this, Brad, is uh, it was about how we would work together, right? And as a funny little segment of what happens in a quartet, if the violinists decide that they're going to play aggressively, um, whereas the violist and cellist play less aggressively, something along those lines. And it was really subtle, somewhat comical, but also just gave you a little bit of a gut punch of, yeah, we got to be all on the same page. Even though you guys were playing the same music, just the emphasis really changed the way it played. And it was, it was, it was, it was amusing, but also inst instructional too. Yeah, we had some acting in that early. Yes, oh, you were actors, that's yeah. right. It was beautiful. We basically used the quartet as a living metaphor, which is something yeah. we often do at chamber music workshops when we're teaching people how to play chamber music. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when we're teaching people who aren't musicians about chamber music, we sort of have these series of scenario that we play out on stage, which what happens if we're not working together? What happens if somebody tries to take control, absolute control of, the situation. <laughs> what happens if somebody is just completely, um, it's, it's a little silly. Uh, but, you know, we felt like there was something there to say. Uh, yeah, I mean, eventually that, that sort of worked its way out of the performance. I know it did. But I mean, that's not a stretch. You guys are all coming with your own <laughs> view of how it should be played, I'm sure. And you want more viola, viola and, you know. Um, but the other thing, I do have to say this, and, and I was hooked, just even that first performance, like I said, I like how it's developed, but just as a scientist and as an applied scientist and wanting to reach out and and, and really interested in things like diversity, um, I thought, Rob, you know, I, it was so brilliant to bring art and science together that way, to really try to meld these things. Um, and and I, I often say that, you know, new science, it, advances in science come through innovation and innovation is an artistic thing, mm. not a scientific thing. I love that. Yeah. So what we're, what, and what you guys do is you bring other elements, you bring other personalities, right? You bring other people to the table to, to, to enlarge in that mixing, you know, mixing box. So we get that diversity of thought and opinion and artistry and how to express it, right? So much of it is just how you're expressing these things. Mm -hmm. um, and I was hooked just right at the beginning. It's like, oh, you guys are on to something. Um, and it's just been lovely to watch this develop. Well, that's appreciate that, John. You know, it's been, it's, yeah, these, these creative types are just really pesky. As you bring them to a project and, and then they really want to do their thing. They're, they're yes. just not doing what you tell them to. They're just yes. creative <laughs> types. <laughs> types. Really like creative orientation. <laughs> She's air courting, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to comment real quick, John. On, so, Brad, this is for you too, Brad. Uh, I've had a number of people tell me that they really missed that bit with the quartet where where you were, like you said, this living, breathing metaphor for what, uh, what goes wrong when you don't collaborate. Um, and um, I remember when we finally decided to jettison that bit, the quartet, you guys were all happy to lose it. <laughs> uh, because acting, you know, I think is probably your least comfortable bit, although you've all become quite good uh, in the project. Um, 
but it's the scientists, interestingly, that have been the most interested in, in that bit. And they really wanted to keep that. And um, I got chewed out by more than a couple of people for, for pulling that out. <laughs> um, well, that's fabulous. So uh, let's shift over. Rebecca now also has been with the project from the beginning as an actual uh, collaborator. And um, the so the 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 notion was in my mind is so the reason we want to bring the artists into it is because they're master storytellers you're you're not just giving giving information you're setting a mood you're you're opening a space for take people to take it in in a very visceral and emotional level how we really connect with information yeah and of course the project uh for those who've seen the film um you know there are many photographs in the in the presentation and many of them are really quite extraordinary photographs and very artistic in their own right but they're also it's explicit information you know we're showing a picture of tar sands or a picture of a polar bear uh lots of wildlife etc and so it's kind of clear what role such an imagery would play in a in a project like this but we specifically wanted you to bring in your your artistic your paintings which are not explicit they're abstract and i'm wondering if you might describe what role those bring to the performance and also how you approached curating from your work uh for these different uh segments of the performance yeah sure sure i'd love to talk about that well i just want to start with the word abstract or abstraction because um the the etymology of that word has to do with 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 drawing something out an essence drawing out an essence or extracting or or pulling out the the deepest flavor of let's say a plant material or an herb in order to make a spice and so in painting with an abstract gesture you are doing the same thing. Um, my source material is as clear as a photograph of a mountain that Garth Lenz might take. You know, the, the original subject that I'm thinking about might be a mountain or a river in the Pacific Northwest. But if I'm working with an abstract language, what I'm trying to do, and it's not always a, um, it's not always a clear line from A to B, but what I'm trying to do is pull out and find the most meaningful colors, forms, textures, and shapes that would allow you as a viewer to experience something of the essence of that place, landscape, subject. And I think in relation to what we've been trying to do with the work of the Crossroads Project and that was really catalyzed by Rob Davies' intention around it is to invite our audiences to find a pathway into this difficult reality of climate change. And I remember conversations that centered on how far do you go with presenting images or material that are, that is troubling and difficult to swallow? So abstract language provides a kind of 
uh, a cushion for entering into this difficult subject matter. And it's not just subject matter that's out there, it's our own sense of dread, disempowerment, guilt, um, concern for the devastation that we see around us as a result of environmental damages. Uh, thank you, Rebecca. That was a fabulous description. And and since we're kind of focusing on this bios section, so we had the water section. Mm -hmm. uh, this is this bit talking about life. And when you curated from your paintings for this section, you picked this series of uh, tondos, mm -hmm. uh, one of which you're wearing on your sweater. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or an example of which, I should say. Uh, and another example of which is hanging on your wall behind you. So could you tell us a little bit about what a tondo is and why it is you, with this, you know, um, uh, vignette, this bios vignette, why you went that direction? The the tondo as a, as a form in painting goes back centuries, but it was used in the, in the, uh, in the early Renaissance as a shape um, of a plate, as a birth plate in the, late um, medieval times and early Renaissance. So uh, women would receive these beautiful ceramic plates that were in the shape of a tondo that were a kind of marker of the anticipation of the birth of a child. So they have this wonderful reference to Italian Renaissance culture. And also in, in the high Renaissance, we see the tondo form used often in Raphael's paintings in some of Michelangelo's paintings. And when I went to Italy and I saw the Pantheon in John Spivak might know this, this building, the, in the ceiling of the, the ceiling of the Pantheon is a dome with an oculus, which is open to the sky. So you can sit under the oculus and get rained on and, and you can perceive the movement of the sky as it moves across the, the building. And I thought that would be a wonderful shape to explore as a painting ground. And in fact, that, that has become, in some of my work, that has become both the earth as seen from space and the ground, but there's no horizon line. And so mm. it presents interesting challenges in terms of thinking about issues of orientation, the earth, where we live, what we see and what we can never see. And also it presents um, ideas about disorientation and, and immobility because, because you don't have a horizon line that's anchoring you and you could go on and spin forever. So we chose, I think, Rob, when we were figuring some of these early sequences um, out about the BIOS movement, we did center on those tondos. And many of them had either elements of water and plant material embedded, not physically, literally embedded in them, but, but conceptually embedded in them. So I felt like it was a magical moment that we found that way of working together. And because of the elements of soil, water, plants, and sky, and weather that were, that are embedded conceptually in those paintings. I mean, we had been thinking about these things, all of us separately, 
before we came together. So that circle brought us together too. <laughs> oh, what a fabulous way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Came together. Well, it's, it's really wonderful that we can see an example of one of the paintings right behind you. Uh, you know, in, 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 in the performance mm -hmm. or in the film, it, they take on a whole nother form and uh, they sort of change the whole atmosphere of the room. But in those cases, we're talking about like a digital um, projection, sometimes like 10 times the original size, <laughs> extremely luminous, projected right? onto like a 30 foot screen. Yeah. Uh, what is it like to uh, see one of your paintings, which is conceived in, in one form and see it sort of um, uh, transformed and used in another setting like that? Um, well, well, and before you answer that, Rebecca, yeah, I'm I, listening. I, I, I just gonna... wonder. No, this go is a great ahead. question, and I just wonder if um, uh, maybe we've got some images that we can throw up. Uh, <laughs> She's gonna make it that big. <laughs> She's... <laughs> Rebecca, she's pulled it off the wall. She's pulled it off the wall. Um, <laughs> it's performance. This is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got some, um, well, we've got some images that we, from the performance, uh, that we yeah. could throw up just so, uh, for those who haven't seen the performance and, and are watching this visually, we can just throw some, throw some of these up. And so here's an example, I think, of what, Brad, that you're talking about. This is one of those Tondos and, um, it's much bigger than the original. Yeah. And it's also being in the performance, it actually gets built in bit by bit. You know, it doesn't, you don't. You don't see it all at once. Right. Um, here's another one. Yeah. And this is in, in the process of this very slow dissolve between that image and some lichen on a tree. And if we freeze this image for just a second, you can see the, I mean, the, the lichen in the background image that's dissolving away is really adding some extra texture to the painting. Right. And then if we go forward one more, Yep. What what struck me about this is I expected that when that background image went away, the texture would go away, but in fact, it doesn't. It's really, to my eye, really highlighted. So there's an example of what Brad right. was saying. And, and, mm -hmm. and Brad, your question was, well, maybe repeat your question. <laughs> well, you know, what is it like to see something that you conceived one way um, transformed in such a dramatic fashion? And, you know, in more ways than one, it just, it also turns out, tangentially that, that that a tondo is the perfect shape for a CD. And so <laughs> that's also what our CD, what our album looks like. It's, yeah. it's the artwork of, of one of your tondos. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a signed copy of one of those. Beautiful. <laughs> well, I feel like, it, again, the use of that uh, lichen photograph that, that, that emerges in and out of the image of the painting I got excited about that because I felt like it helped, it helps audiences make that more direct connection to the observed world that they might know. I mean, I mean, in John's world of, of what animals see when they walk around the forest and they're looking down at moss. They could even help us understand what animals see that's between the human and other species. So this, this thing that you did is kind of interspecial work in a way. And it's okay with me. I mean, this, 
I have to make a painting that's going to stand up on its own as an artist. If I'm working by myself and I want to please myself and, and, and be consistent with my own ambition. But if I'm collaborating with you, then that's a whole other game. And I feel that um, it works, you know, it just works in that way. And I'd like to talk more about that as we talk with audiences after the film and how they perceive that. One thing that does, I felt like was multiplied in the film version that really surprised me is when the image is across the whole screen and the, the, the filmmaker gets close to the musician and you see the musician's face right against, you know, like against the canvas like this, that does something even better because that sets the musician, the artist into an, an environment or you into the environment much more directly. And it's almost like a, a set design. Mm -hmm. It's more of a set, it becomes a kind of set design. And it is something you don't get in a live performance. You th that mm -hmm. happens in the film. Uh, yeah. I wonder if you could roll the the second clip that we had teed up, which gives a is a really good illustration of what Rebecca was just saying. And as we stand before this great complex and adaptive biosystem, who among us identifies the pieces that are not needed? Okay, that was yeah. Cool. Uh, just <laughs> one thought that popped up is that last summer, no, not last summer. This is a couple years ago. I started working with the Kentucky Natural Lands Trust as an advisor, and the Kentucky Natural Lands Trust is working to preserve the Pine Mountain um, Greenway. That blended image reminded me of the lichens and the slime mold that you find in um, some of the di most diverse ecosystem in the world on Pine Mountain in southeastern Kentucky. So it's like, is it abstract or is it is it completely realistic? It's, it's both. That was a great, that's such a great example of how everything melded. Like you're yeah. saying, Rebecca, too, with nature and art, but also, you know, I got to tell you, just listening to that clip and watching that clip, I'm feeling my heart elevate as you are just really land, you know, leading into it. Um, and then going calm. Oh, and I love the, the, the earthy, the earthiness of those instruments, Brad. 
Oh my God. They sound so wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. and then, and then the soft final notes and it, the visual mm. bleeds perfectly in with the music. Mm. So the editing, everything was done just really well. And I end up calm. You know what I mean? It's, mm -hmm. it starts, you get angst and then you, oh, breathe. And it was really yeah. nice. Well done. Yeah. I'm glad you uh, talked about that. I was going to ask you because, uh, you know, for those who are listening and not watching that the music is just standing alone in this case. So I wanted to ask you your reaction. I mean, that movement has quite an arc to it, it sort of mm -hmm. starts very mysterious at the beginning, very quiet. And you can imagine these disparate elements, molecules and amoebas starting to come together and yeah. form something greater. And then it builds and it builds. And to me, there it, it, it gains some tension also. It's, mm -hmm. you, you can almost sense like the competition Absolutely. for resources. Like, a, mm. like there's a desperation of sort of a magnificent desperation towards the top. And then it sort of breaks okay. and then we have this sort of resolution and resolve uh, towards the end of the movement. Mm. Um, and of course- the perspective, that's, that's what the movement says to me. Mm. And of course, all of this, what you just articulated, John and Brad uh, and Rebecca was, is, is the actual heart of the conception of, of telling this story this way. So rather than just a science lecture, um, adding these additional elements that, that affect us all quite deeply. And so maybe this is a good place to transition and say that, okay, but, but, at its, but also at its heart in this performance is delivering some information. Mm -hmm. yeah, much of the information is just wondrous and fascinating. Yeah. Um, some of it is also very difficult uh, emotionally. Um, but at the heart is it's information that we need to take in and um, and demands a response really, or uh, should demand a response. And that's that's maybe the purpose of the performance is to get that from us. Uh, so so we've been talking about the music and the and the paintings. Let's go back to the information, mm -hmm. and I want to roll a, our second clip, John. And then I and it's it's delivering science, but distilled, highly distilled. And then the question, of course, is, well, how did we do? <laughs> planet Earth, planet water. Planet water, planet light. So much life. Ancient, diverse, everywhere. More than a million species we know about. Millions upon millions, we really don't. The sheer variety. This biodiversity is breathtaking, woven into tapestries of living systems, ecosystems, life and environment, interacting, interdependent, inseparable. It is the essence of life on our island planet, Earth species not separate from their environment or each other, but arising from their environment together. They self-assemble like a snowflake, reform their environment and are themselves reformed, evolved through environmental selection. <laughs> An evolution, though, not of millions of separate species, but co-evolution of millions of connected components of a vast self-assembling, self-repairing, self-governing, complex and adaptive biosystem 
And unknowing as we are of most of its components and how they're connected, we understand this biosystem but a little. Of the millions of things to understand, we understand approximately five. Because these are life's most basic operating principles, nature's paradigms, and they are clear and visible everywhere. Number one. Well, if you want to know the five, you got to watch the film. <laughs> um, so John is a scientist, though, taking in that monologue. Uh, uh, how, yeah, what do you think? Well, in the context of that monologue and the one before it, um, you had mentioned, I remembered, a, I don't remember the Leopold quote exactly, but regarding when you're tinkering with complex mechanisms, the first rule is to keep all the pieces, right? Mm. Um, and and you, it, you really almost sort of paraphrase and just built on that. I thought that was a, a, it was a wonderful point to make um, and to bring it home. I love that language with the snowflake. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah, wasn't that a great image? Yeah. It was really, um, really neat. The science part, though, this is interesting. This is, if there's anything I'm conflicted a little bit um, in the science is that one of the difficulties as I've had in my whole career is this degree, is this um, acceptance of uncertainty, uh, this embracing uh, of uncertainty. And and a lot of whether it's a scientific in our article or or, or this project, um, you come across that we've got this many million species out there, um, but then there's flip numbers of then we're losing all these animals, but then there, there's a there's a certain element of I don't know maybe maybe this is more about me and my approach to science and and saying up front that there's a lot we don't know. And by saying what we don't know doesn't mean we shouldn't care, right? Mm. You know, ignorance is no excuse for complacency. And if, if anything, it presents a little more urgency um, and practicalness that there's a lot out there. It's a complicated thing. Uh, I do like how, you know, you mentioned this is a self-assembling, self-fixing thing. And the irony here that maybe doesn't come home to a lot of folks is that you know, and I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this, but I mean, the earth doesn't care if we're on it or not. If we shake ourselves off of our own, only one, one, it's one, not 1.7 planets, right? It's our one planet. If we shake ourselves off of it, the world doesn't care. Um, it's tragic. It's terrible. It's, it's all those things, but there's a certain element of, I don't know, it's, it's even bigger as much as you're trying to, um, address in this, I think a lot of the questions are still even bigger of, you know, who are we? Why are we here? How are we going to stay here? And how are we going to live with ourselves as we stay here? Mm. Wow, that really hits me. Oh, I hope in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in your introduction, John, you talked a little bit about your work um, and exploring the borders about sort of living in that in that zone between man's world and and right. and nature's world um I, I mean the crossroads project is interesting it explores the borders between disciplines that, and the, that's why i love the it borders yeah. between the uh, between art and science uh, that's yeah. sort of an interesting connection but as somebody who really spends a lot of time in, in between worlds is there anything that you'd like above all to communicate 
to that you wish everyone would would know okay here think about, think about more yeah more in their day in their in their daily life or their conception of the and, yeah and, and, yeah okay that's great it's a wonderful question here, here's the thing and i think a lot of it i usually explain this is because maybe i'm a middle child or something and i just want us all to get along and you know find that place right um but rebecca you know that this is in a lot of your other work that you do too with gardening yeah i was talking with Rob earlier about my garden how proud i am of having my garden and not to be so utilitarian about the earth, but it's our garden, right? <laughs> you know? And for me, going out, getting my hands dirty, hurting my back, bending over, mm -hmm. putting up, I put, what did I put? I put up my like plums and pears and oh, I've got, <laughs> I had like 180 pounds of tomatoes this year. It was wonderful. Wow. Um, it's, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's a lot of work, <laughs> but that's our guy. So you could either look at this at, this is a sacrifice. Oh no, we've got to save the planet. It's going to be so hard. Or mm -hmm. you can look at it. We're gardening. Oh right? my gosh. Yes. And, and I think I was hoping that would resound, you know, resonated with you a little bit, Rebecca, I mean, cause that's oh you're designing God. landscapes. We're designing yeah. where we want to go and it's work. Oh yeah. It's work. Uh, it gardening is not for sissies. <laughs> it's, I mean, it is for sissies <laughs> right. too. Um, I'm a sissy, and um, I also would like to be known as Brad described you as a rugged visual artist. <laughs> um, but there's nothing like planting tomatoes or growing apple trees that brings you in direct contact with the plant and animal and insect kingdom so directly. And you feel the, you feel their, its strength and its power and its capacity to shake you off the earth. And you also feel the capacity to cooperate with it. Um, I mean, I know Brad is, is also, and, and Rob and Rebecca are avid gardeners. So we are all sort of involved in this practice, but it's funny because when you were talking about there, John, you were talking about the fact that there are these a lot of bigger questions out there that have to do with our relationship to what we're doing here and and admitting to ourselves that the earth doesn't care if we stay here. Then if if that's the case, what are we going to do with our one little life? Right. And the crossroads this the, these relationships, these friendships have really catalyzed my decision, catalyzed my decision to go back to school for horticulture. And I've never felt more hopeful when I am doing the kinds of things that you just described in the garden, you know, mulching, turning the soil, because there's something, maybe you can explain this, you scientists, there's actually something that's biochemical that happens when you smell the soil and it works on your nervous system and your brain. And I think there's something about the question you asked, the bigger question of who are we, what are we doing here, that's answered in that nonverbal experience of that transmission of information from the soil and from the air. Well said. 
I'm trying to think more about that. I'm thinking more no, about I just that. Wonder, no, it's, that's, that's wonderful. Good. I'm glad. Yeah, it's, it's sort of the crossroads project uh, <laughs> yeah. right in front of you. It's, it's water and it's bios and it's forage and it's even societists, you know, I would say yeah. I kind exactly. of consider my garden as both a, a form of peaceful protest I and, love that. And, and therapy. You know, That's so great. here we are in Logan. Uh, I live in a pretty <laughs> suburban, like sort of a manicured neighborhood on the foothills of these rugged mountains, you know. And so right. the norm in my neighborhood is to have a green, all-American golf course sort of lawn. And what I've focused on is tearing all of that out and putting in water-wise landscaping because right. we do have a sort of an addiction to residential water usage uh, mm -hmm. here in Utah. Uh, we overuse the water. Mm -hmm. We use more than we should. And um, there aren't that many people in my neighborhood that, that have gone this route. Uh, and so people are really curious about it. Mm -hmm. They stop all the time and want to talk about it. It opens up a conversation. And I always mm -hmm. talk about the reason the reason why I do this is to, to save water and, um, and to provide forage and, and habitat for a species who, mm -hmm. who need it a little more than they have. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've also become a gardener. It's sort of a reluctant gardener at first, but it turned out that it was something I needed. I didn't even know. I, I, I didn't even know that I needed it. <laughs> wow. I love how you said it that way, too. Yeah. Where it's like we're living, you're, what you're doing is you're choosing things that you can grow. I, I've got uh, friends and colleagues uh, drive by and say, oh, that's John's house. You, it, he's the one with the big sagebrush, you know, in the front yard. <laughs> um, we're just, you're just, we're just working with what we have. And, and again, it's not, <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? And <laughs> I planted it so, shortly after I moved in, probably, you know, probably 18 years ago or so. Um, so, but we're working with what we have. And again, it doesn't mean everything. I still, you know, I've got a water. You know, I've still got to do some other things. We're still living in, we're in Northern Utah here and it's pretty dry. Um, but it's kind of that medium place. Again, it's like, it's the way that this, this product, this um, crossroads ends a little more hopeful is that, you know, you can, we don't have to t tear down my house and put in what would be just a sagebrush field in order to still contribute something, right? In order to still be a part of it, in order to still mm -hmm. kind of get back to Nate and understand what you like about nature. So you don't have to live in a loincloth to be part of nature. And Rebecca, like what you're, you're mm -hmm. saying, just getting your, gosh, bending over, getting your hands dirty, you know, and it's okay. My, my point though, I, I think what I really want to get, back, get to is, I mean, it's okay to hurt right? Mm -hmm. Practice hurts, Brad. Like those days, I bet you don't want to pick that instrument up and, and do it or, or pick up the paintbrush or whatever it is or, or off, you know, say, oh gosh, gosh, another math lab, whatever it is. Oh, yes. um, I, I pick up my mechanical pencil. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, but, but it's worth it. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really worth it. We can contribute through little things and there's a real sense of um, moving towards why it's worth it than uh, falling into, as I talked about the early Crossroads project, you know, you can either walk out with despair or you can walk mm -hmm. out with hope and and realizing hope needs some work, right? Hope, um, it's that mm -hmm. applied hope, right? Yeah. Um, what you do with it. I'm an and, applied ecologist and applied hopeful person. <laughs> and John, I know you've worked in a number of different capacities since I've known you, but you really do live in that sort <laughs> yeah, of border between 
between worlds. So, I mean, mm -hmm. your job is hard sometimes. I remember mm -hmm. once you told me that if, if everybody was a little bit mad at you, then you were doing your job pretty well, you thought? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because you're dealing with real policy issues and, and land use. Right. Yep, can I ask, can I, I know there's lots of like questions, burning questions, but John, maybe you've asked to talk about this a lot the last few months, but what, what is your sense of, like, how do you explain your understanding of the relationship between the coronavirus and animal land and people land? Is that something that you've been asked? Because I've been thinking about it as you talk about these boundaries between the... Yeah, not so much directly, but a lot of the discussion has been more about this interface between humans and and animals and how we're living with them and how we're intermixing with them. Mm -hmm. And so these many of these diseases, they do, they jump, right? Zooeponotics. Um, and so they'll jump from animal to people. And how we are interacting with these animals um, is something that we need to pay a lot of attention to. So there's been a lot of discussion about that. Mm -hmm. um, and then frankly, there's also been a lot of concern, um, you know, bats, bats are some of the coolest animals out there. And the last thing you want people doing is like, oh, bats, they're terrible. They harbor diseases that are going to kill us and have a backlash against that. Mm -hmm. So most of the discussion is just still forming now about how we manage this part of our relationship with us in the natural mm -hmm. world and then worried about backlash um, uh, towards these animals. Mm -hmm. Thank you, John. So a number of things have just come up, I think, that are... Uh, play right into the story of course we're trying to tell which is that everything's connected and we have these very large emerging crises climate crisis a biodiversity crisis and social crises as well massive uh, accelerating inequity of the distribution of our wealth and resources as a society uh, massive unsustainability in the way that we conduct ourselves and as i was listening to brad talk about his interactions with his neighbors you know, and uh, Rebecca and I, uh, Rebecca McFall and I, uh, in our home, have similar experiences with our neighbors because we're also doing something similar in our, our yard as, as Brad, you and Denise are. And so people talk and they want to talk about it. And I think a lot of times um, these examples uh, of, and there are others around town, you know, I think we all know where the cool yards are. You would think of as the cool yards. That actually get people's imaginations going. And, and John, you mentioned early this notion of sacrifice and, and what is sacrifice versus um, just change. Uh, and I think oftentimes the notion of sacrifice, we, we view something as a sacrifice because it's a change. It's not something we're used to. Um, and so... John, in your work with predators, too, I think, and and we're speaking on a day, by the way, in which just yesterday, um, uh, wolves were taken off the endangered species list. And now that I mean, this is going to have, I imagine, potentially huge impact on 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 this, mm. you know, uh, apex predator in a number of ecosystems mm. um, that we have these attitudes towards, let's say, predators for a particular reason, a big piece of which is the food system that we've built up, right? So here in the West, we have conflicts between, say, ranchers and predators, um, coyotes and wolves in particular, I imagine bears as well. Um, and you can work on that on one level, 
assuming that nothing else is going to change, assuming that public attitude isn't going to change, assuming that our food system isn't going to change. But if you actually start working on more systems, Eisenhower had this great quote, you know, if a problem is too big to be solved, make it bigger. Um, and what he meant was you're probably not including enough pieces. So it might be interesting to know what that conversation uh, uh, in our society would be about predators if we were also moving away from a very meat intensive food system, which of course, uh, lots and lots of research in terms of human sustainability says we need to do because uh, the mm -hmm. current way we do it is just not sustainable. And so all of these things that we're working on, whether it's our yards in our, uh, in, in our suburban neighborhoods or our relationship to nature, often are hamstrung, I think, by our thought that these, are, these systems can't change. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know, I'm going to throw that out there. I'll just let that, I'll let it flop. And did that stimulate any thinking among you? And Well, one example of something that's challenging that entrenched feeling is, I mean, place like the New York Botanical Garden has has this wonderful new program called the Edible Academy, which is a, a large physical area in the garden that is an outdoor classroom to teach young people and all people about growing food, even in an urban environment. And it's so successful and it's such a it's such a magnet. And I think these are the kinds of things that that started to come out of the seed saving efforts of indigenous peoples in the United States that have been going on for hundreds of years that translated over to um, uh, edible schoolyard programs and things like that. But that's, for me, that's a ray of hope. <laughs> you might be flopping into the, the next was that the next segment there, you know, on where you start with your carrot? Um, <laughs> right. I thought you were going to say, what's up, doc, to start. I was really surprised. <laughs> um, no, but I think what you say there, and, and this is a really important point, Rebecca, yeah. is knowing where your food comes from. Mm -hmm. And again, oh, gosh, if there's any comes, I don't want to seem wishy-washy about it but I'm really not going to be hardcore, black and white, my way, highway, you know what I mean? Even if you don't, you don't have to garden all your food to get an appreciation for food, right? Yeah. Um, and, but frankly, you just can't buy a tomato like you can grow. <laughs> the, that's one of the cardinal rules, I think, of life. Except at uh, the gardener's market. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe at the gardener's market. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Um, and then, but then the other thing is, too, I think of things like you talk about meat and meat production. Um, you know, I don't want to be black and white and say it's, I, I mean, we'd be better off as Americans eating less meat. I, I think that's the case. But I want to go, I want to go and say you can't have any meat ever, right? Um, but I would like to, I'd rather, my own philosophy on that is garden or meat. Uh, it, it's how you're getting it. I'd much rather be responsible. If I'm going to eat meat, then I've got to be the one to go harvest that meat. It's mm -hmm. going to hurt. You got to draw it out. You got to work. You got, it's really, um, intense emotionally and physically mm -hmm. to go through that process. Um, but there's nothing better than, boy, an animal, free range 
animal, no antibiotics, none of that stuff, none of this, the rest of the complex that we have in the U.S. where we're creating fertilizers to, mm. you know, you're, you're trucking fertilizers with fossil fuels to grow plants, to truck to Florida, to feed in a feedlot. There's like all these series of steps that are creating inefficiencies that we don't have to have happen. And I think that's what a lot of the discussion about is about is, you know, it's not just yes or no, you can or you can't do this, but I think it's more the process of how we're doing these things and how we can do them more efficiently and more sustainably. Um, and I hope in a way that we're more still connected with, with our environment and with our food. I mean, that's, we live off of this planet using the planet. Mm -hmm. How do we, it's, it's so dangerous when we become so disconnected that we don't know where food comes from. That's, yeah. that's maybe one of the, my biggest concerns. Oh, well, and certainly it's a point uh, we, we make in the script that, yes. mm -hmm. uh, that this system is embedded in this larger natural world. It has to work. Right. Uh, it has to. So uh, our one example, of course, that gets used a lot, but I think is, is a really instructive is roughly 30 percent of our food is pollinated by pollinators. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, there's kind of a the, not kind of there's a definite crisis in in pollinators, uh, not just here in the United States, but around the world. And so mm -hmm. here we find this human system of food production embedded within this much larger natural system. Um, and ultimately, they have they will have to work. Ultimately, they will work together. I mean, we're, we're headed towards a sustainable state, whether we like it or not. Um, I mean, humanity will at some point be sustainable uh, mm -hmm. by definition. But most of the sustainable states we can imagine aren't particularly pleasant. <laughs> and so, so well, we, need guess, to, we need to yeah. find our way to, a, to, to one that is uh, a food system, for example, in this case that we're talking, that's embedded in this natural system uh, that, that's going to give us the food we want and enjoy. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason it can't. Uh, right. It comes down to the question we we're talking about is what do you want your garden to look like? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, this is our garden. This is where we live. What do we want it to look like? Mm -hmm. um, hopefully you can all agree that we want it a little prettier. Yeah. Well, um, I think we're running into our, uh, the end of our time, John and Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. And, and, um, I, I think that's a lovely line to leave it with. What do we want our garden our island to, look like. to look like? Yeah. Um, so thank you both so much. For joining us and for being a part of this project, uh, you know, John, your your thoughts uh, are embedded in the current iteration of this performance because you've you've spoken to us over the years and and we've we take those things in and we <laughs> make it just, and the same with Rebecca, not just your paintings but also your your feedback. Well, we thank you. You guys did all the work. Um, thanks for sharing it and just kind of bringing some 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 great emotions and intellectual application here. It's, it's wonderful to be a part of it and to experience. Uh, I echo everybody's sentiments, and I just want to say thank you to everybody. And um, also just to mention that my Tondo pin with the eye was made by an artist named Ken Crow Ken. It's not mine, but Ken's. <laughs> Lovely. Well, and it is it is sort of great that we've rounded the corner into the next uh, into the next topic for the for the Super. next uh, podcast. So that'll be on forage 
um, okay. and we'll be out uh, out soon. So keep an eye open for that. Thank you once more uh, to Rebecca and John for joining us. Thank you. Really, Thank you. Really great conversation. And uh, if you want to know more about the Crossroads Project, or uh, if you want to watch the full length film, uh, visit uh, Nova L sorry, www.novaslc.org. That's the webpage of the Nova Chamber Music Series. You can also donate if you appreciate the work um, that Nova has done to, um, to make the Crossroads film available to the public. And it will be up for viewing uh, through the end of the year. Uh, so you can donate at that website. You can learn more about uh, Nova's unique programming and uh, find the full film and also the uh, individual podcast episodes, which we are halfway through now. We would definitely like to thank our season sponsors, the Utah Legislature and the Utah Division of Arts and Museums, the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation, Salt Lake County Zoo Arts and Parks, George S. and Dolores Eccles Foundation, Isotope, Salt Lake City Arts Council, the Cultural Vision Fund, Dominion Energy, Rocky Mountain Power Foundation, the Alice M. Ditson Fund of Columbia University, and the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music. It takes a village. So thank you, everybody, and we'll see you for the next episode. This has been the Nova Podcast. Our hosts were Rob Davies and Bradley Otteson. Our guests were John Shivik and Rebecca Allen. This episode was produced by Chris Myers. The Nova Podcast is funded by listeners like you. You can donate to support Nova's programming at novaslc.org. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to info at novaslc.org. Well, we've talked about water. We've talked about life. On the next episode, it's time to talk about dinner. The menu includes agroecology and sustainable food prepared by farmer Chris Mage and composer Gabriella Lena Frank. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and share the Nova podcast with your friends. We'll see you next time.